most of us in Western culture don't realize just how constrained we are until we get someplace where we're not constrained. And then you think, oh, my God, I'm covered with chains. I'm weighted down like Marley's ghost with chains. And they begin to fall off. And when they fall off, you become a different person. We're back with Charles Harper Webb. We're going to talk about his fantastic book, Ursula Lake, which is available right now from Red Hen Press. You can be the first in your family to have it because it just came out a few months ago. Go out and get it. So in Ursula Lake, two friends revisit the scene of what was like the time of their life. And we've all hopefully had these moments where we go somewhere and it's amazing and you have a fabulous day or month or week. Then you go back to that place maybe years later, decades later, and something has changed. In your book, I'm not sure if they've changed or if the place has changed. It's kind of both, but I'm wondering, what is your take on that? You're right, it's both. But probably if you want to look at it psychologically, they have changed because we've been talking all about the spirit world and everything. And in Ursula Lake, they go back to a very remote area in the wilderness And they encounter a lot of things which may or may not be spirits, but they certainly are the unconscious coming out and becoming real. So, yeah, they come back five years before they were kind of carefree. They've had five years in the real world, and it has changed their psyche way more than they know. And then they get out into the wilderness, and it works upon them. Both things have changed. The character of Jim Bearclaw wasn't there before, but in a way you could say that he's an embodiment of some of the things that have changed in their psyche. It's an interesting premise and it speaks to me because I've done those pilgrimages. I moved from New York to Los Angeles when I was 30-ish. And for the first couple of years, I really felt like I missed New York and I wanted to live back in New York and go back there and What I realized over many years is that what I wanted to do was live in New York in my 20s. Again, I was nostalgic for the person that I was, not the place that I was. You know, that never comes back. I'm happy being older now, but I was also happy when I was younger. I think there's a real tendency for people to really romanticize good old days as, you know, like these are the good old days now. Yeah. So you have this idea that if I could go back to where I was happy, I would be that person, just like you say. And no, things have changed, you know, and you can't get away from that. So what genre would you say this book is in? Well, I think it's a mix of genres. It's certainly got one foot in almost horror. I would call it a psychological thriller, but it does have a foot in, I say, horror, even supernatural horror. There's stuff going on that's hard to explain without using the supernatural. It's not impossible to explain. And that's one of the things that I enjoy playing with here. But in a way, it's easier to explain it by falling back on supernatural explanations than other explanations. That's interesting that, yeah, you feel like you could explain everything naturally. I guess I didn't think of that. I just sort of felt like, okay, there's just some weird stuff happening. Yeah. And that's what happens in the deep woods. The very first scene of the book the protagonist, I guess, though there's really three protagonists, has a vision with the deer and is pulled into the world 
that isn't that far removed from Fool's Crow's world because it's the woods, it's animals, it's wilderness, and it's things going on in your head. But the characters in Ursula Lake are not as comfortable with it because that's not their culture. They're in a very strange place. Whereas Fool's Crow would say, man, okay, the badger talked to me. Big deal. They always talk to me. Raven comes down and talks to me cool. He talks to me all the time. But when a deer appears to almost put his soul into somebody else, into a human, then that's weird. That doesn't happen to white boys. That's certainly not part of the narrative of our culture. And I think that's really the only difference. Culture is made up. You know, nothing in culture is real. It's just a made up way of seeing the world. And our made up way is whatever it is. And another culture's made up way is whatever it is. And neither of them are right. They're just both ways of seeing the world. Yeah, they're ways of trying to make sense of something that our senses probably aren't even evolved enough to make sense of in totality. We're just trying to have a vision of the world that allows us to cope. There are things in heaven and earth that are undreamt of by your philosophy, Horatio, to quote Hamlet. Thank you. You know, we don't have enough Shakespeare quoting on this podcast. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're primarily a poet, although maybe you're primarily a novelist now. I think you should write more novels. How does poetry affect your prose? Are they different muscles for you? To some degree, they are. And it's taken me a while to learn the difference. But if you get back far enough, they're tapping the same unconscious well, I think. But I've always been very interested in narrative. A lot of my poems have been narrative. And I'm very interested in the unconscious. This novel deals with that a lot, and my poems deal with that a lot. I'm very interested in surreal things and dream states. I've just always been interested in that. So there's a close relationship, but trying to write a novel is very, very different from trying to write a poem. And it took me a kind of long time to figure out just how different. I thought it would be easier than it was. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I feel your pain on that one. And congratulations on actually finishing it. I mean, you're a professional writer, obviously, you're going to get it done. But it's still an accomplishment to do something in a completely new medium. I'm in the middle of writing a nonfiction book right now. And like, it just feels like it's never going to end. Yeah, oh, I know, man, that's the novel. In writing poetry, at least I write, the first draft is kind of a rush. And that's exciting. And then I use my technical skill to home it. And I move back and forth between creating and sculpting and creating and sculpting, but it's all done pretty quickly. Whereas in a novel, oh man, you're in for the long haul. And that kind of rush that comes often with poetry doesn't come as often with novels because so much of it is moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. I mean, there are rushes, yeah, but it's a marathon. There are plenty of times in writing a novel when you think, I've hit the wall, I can't go any further, I'm done. So you talk a lot elsewhere, and your book is about being outside. And the book that you chose is largely about being outside. And you are an avid fly fisherman. How does the experience of being alone in nature affect your work? Yeah, well, it's a transcendent sort of experience, and in good ways and bad ways. I remember vividly, First time I was really alone in the Canadian wilderness, thinking, oh man, if anything goes wrong here, I am fucked because there's nobody 
nobody to help me. Okay, I'm here with somebody, but he's on the other side of the lake. There's nobody going to help me. If we go up this road and our car gets stuck, there's no cell phones. When I was there, we didn't have cell phones, but even if we did, they wouldn't have any coverage. It's very dangerous. And there's that sense of danger that becomes part of the experience. But it's also incredibly exhilarating because there's nobody to tell me what to do. Most of us in Western culture don't realize just how constrained we are until we get someplace where we're not constrained. And then you think, oh, my God, I'm covered with chains. I'm weighted down like Marley's ghost with chains. And they begin to fall off. And when they fall off, you become a different person. That's interesting. I think that really speaks to the dichotomy between the city and the hunter-gatherer. That is a Western thing to feel afraid of being alone. Or that being alone is inherently dangerous, which for us it is. For a Pakuni, it's not. One of the things that I found fascinating, the guy that told me, about Fool's Crow, Raise the Peta. He's friends with a lot of Navajo and he goes out to the reservation a lot. And he was talking about this, that like a Native American, even today, will just start off walking someplace. They're not worried about it. And in the older days, when they'd have their weapons, their hunting, their knew how to do everything, every place was home for a pakuni. You know, as long as you're not getting chased by your enemies, you can be anywhere. You can live anywhere. In our culture, man, well, at least you want a Motel 6. What am I going to get? Like Wendy's? I got to eat something. You know, you're not going to like shoot a deer and you don't know how to cook it. Yeah, I mean, it's rare when people do that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Ursula Lake, too, is that they're eating fish all the time. They are really cooking and catching their own food, which changes your outlook in a really interesting way. Have you done that when you've been out in the backcountry, like lived off of your catches? Yeah, yeah. I used to go up into Canada with a friend, not Errol, <laughs> but <laughs> right. we'd go up way up into Canada. I lived in Seattle and I was playing in bands up there and it was easy to go through the border. So we just start driving into British Columbia, and we'd start exploring places of fish along the way. But we would bring like some powdered milk and some tang and some water and some bread. And mainly we eat fish. We just knew we were going to catch them. And I remember coming back one time. We'd probably been out in the woods for maybe two weeks just eating like that. And we went to a little restaurant somewhere in Canada and we both of us wanted to do this. We got the little containers of jelly and just ate them because we had no <laughs> sugar for all this time. That was weird. You know, you have peach jelly, just eat it. <laughs> it's really a strange experience. It changes you when you're killing your own food. You're cutting it, you're gutting it, you're doing all that stuff. It makes you feel differently. It makes you feel more competent. Have you ever felt like an animal was talking to you when you were in the woods or, you know, in your house or wherever? I don't know if I consciously thought it, but I wouldn't be surprised. I don't have the kinds of experiences that Fool's Crow had because it's not part of my cultural expectations. So I think that if Raven talks to Fool's Crow, that's just normal. That's how life is. 
if a raven started talking to me, I'd be more worried. That's not how it works. Am I hallucinating what's going on? If I lived in the woods for a very long time, I'll bet that would change. If that happened to you in L.A., you would have to go to the UCLA Lodge and see the medicine man. Yeah, exactly. And the medicine man would give you some kind of antipsychotic, and then you'd be a mess. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, you would go tell an expert, and they would give you something to eat or drink or rub on you that would cure it. It's funny because there are a lot of things that you can do really well with Western medicine. And the reason is that we spent centuries cutting people open and figuring out how they work physically. And we do have a really good understanding of basically how one system at a time works or how one or two systems interact with each other. And the Eastern approach, which is also, I think, the Pakuni approach is this sort of holistic approach where like, you know, if something is wrong with your back, how are you holding your feet? Yeah, and there's a whole cosmology behind it. Evil spirits or bad medicine or some god is mad at you because you didn't fulfill a vow. I mean, it's a whole different cosmology. I think in the cosmology is where it loses Westerners because these things are metaphors. But if you're someone who grew up Christian and you believe that your cosmology is literal, it's hard for you to understand that someone else's cosmology is not necessarily literal. And it's there to teach you a lesson to get you to understand something that you wouldn't otherwise understand. Like how if you read between the lines, you can understand that Jesus definitely did peyote in the desert for 40 days. <laughs> so I want to just talk about your poem, We've Got Rhythm, which is about animals having their own rhythm that is different from human rhythm and how only humans can make the kinds of rhythms and you describe them in songs that people know that like jazz and I think there's a Fats Waller reference in there. So something that struck me about this poem in relation to Fool's Crow is that Fool's Crow seems to just understand these different languages. And that's why he's able to talk to these animals in this way. And I live in a place that has a lot of nature. I've had this experience of like, I can just kind of sit there and watch a lizard for a few minutes and its movements stop looking random. And you can kind of understand why it's doing what it's doing. There was something in your poem about how only humans can make human types of music. And the thing that it triggered in me is that and this is part of the research for a book that I'm working on is that that has actually been tested. It is actually true that other animals, no animal that we have tested, including primates and bonobos who are really close to us, none of them really understand rhythm. It seems to be something that they're incapable of understanding the way that we understand it. It's one of my favorite things about poetry that like, that is clearly not what you were writing about, but it basically smacked me in the face with that, which is what I loved about it. One of the great things about if a poem is working, the unconscious is in it. And the unconscious knows way more than the conscious does. So if somebody sees something in a poem of mine that I didn't consciously put there, I got no scruples against saying, yeah, my unconscious probably saw that. That's how it works. In your bio, it says that you are an avid baseball fan. So let's just get into the nitty gritty. First of all, are you the kind of baseball fan that is such a baseball fan you don't have a particular team? Or are you a fan of a team? No, I'm probably less of a fan now than I was when I was younger, but I still follow Mike Trout a lot. And of course, Shohei Otani is phenomenal. I'm a fan of Justin Turner on the Dodgers, and I really like Mookie Betts. Boy, they scored when they got him. And of course, I like Kershaw. I mean, Kershaw is like a stud. So we'll call you a Dodger fan for the purposes of the podcast then. Yeah, I like 
both of the local teams. And I like the Houston Astros. I'm from Houston. My sister still lives there. She loves the Astros. So for non-baseball fans, this is about the most controversial thing you can say because the Astros and the Dodgers are sort of arch rivals at this moment, and they are poised to be playing in the World Series together this year. If it were held today, it would be between them. And the Astros maybe slightly definitely cheated the last time we were in the World Series with them. Maybe slightly definitely (laughs) did. (laughs) People got in trouble. It was a scandal. I feel this dichotomy because I was born in Boston. I moved to New York, and now I live in Los Angeles. So I've been a fan of the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Dodgers. So let me ask you the final question that we do actually ask everyone at the end of the podcast, which is simply to recommend two books for our audience. There is a book that I'm just about to start reading. It's by a guy named Ian McGilchrist. This is not fiction. Did you know who he is? Yeah. Are you about to start reading The Master and His Emissary? That's the book. Yeah. So I can announce now that Megan O'Giblin and I, who talked about Julian Jaynes's book, which is sort of in a similar vein are planning to do an episode about the master and his emissary in the near future. Yeah, well, I actually do a blog for psychology today. I'm going to relate that book to creative writing. I haven't read much of the book, but I've heard Ian McGilchrist talk about it on several different lengthy discussions. And it's amazing how that fits exactly with the way that I teach creative writing. So that's a book that's really, really interesting. Charles, that book is going to blow your mind. Oh, I believe it. It's going to change your life. I picked it up. I've had it for two days and I was teaching. So it's on my bed right now. I've been reading a lot of short stories, anything by Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor is so good. You know, it's one of these people that I look at and I think, damn, I usually don't feel particularly humble around other writers, but You know, there's some that I do. I feel very humble around the spirit of James Welch. And I feel very humble around Flannery O'Connor because she's so damn good at what she does. I know that feeling well. For me, it's George Eliot, Marianne Evans. I read Middlemarch and I'm like, I think this might be the apotheosis of the genre. Like this might just be the only book we need. I haven't read Middlemarch since I was in college. I'll have to pick that up again because I remember liking it. They say that Middlemarch reads you every time you read it. (laughs) Charles Harper Webb, thank you so much for joining us. This was really a fun little thing to do. I had a great time. and I think you really run a good show. I enjoyed myself fully. It's just like we were chatting. It was great. My guest next week is Rodrigo Rivera de Ebre. He is the author of a great novel called Displaced. And we're going to be reading The Ultimate Stay-at-Home Dad by Shannon Carpenter. And I thought I'd bring my son Jude in to help me with this reading. I'm a fireman. You're a fireman? Yeah. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. It's just like we were chatting. It was great. (laughs) 
you can cut this part if you want. <laughs> Why would I cut that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I don't want the audience to think that the guests have fun.